Is it time? Yeah, it's time. Welcome to the True Craft Podcast. I am your host, Chris Farman, and I'm joined by co-host, Katie Noel. This time around, we are all about one thing, killer conversations with close friends about the state of craft. Oh, it's going to be good. I hope to open the box on fresh topics while honoring the path that got us here. Let's do it. And we're back for another episode of the True Craft Podcast. Today we have, as always, the lovely Katie Noel. And our special guest today is Michelle Tressler. I'm going to call you co-founder. Co-founder, I know your title is Chief Strategy Officer (laughs) of Hinterland (laughs) Brewery and Restaurant in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you for having me. What's uh, what's the good word in Green Bay? What's the good word uh, weather-wise or, yeah, what's going on in Green Bay so right now? It's cold a little bit here. It's We're used to it. It's not terrible. It's been worse, but um, we can get a few sunny days this time of year. We're always thrilled. Um, but, yeah, it's okay. Not too bad. Yeah. You know, for all the listeners when we relaunched the podcast, Michelle's equal, her, her other half, Bill Tressler was the first episode that we, we released. And that episode was, was such a, it was such a valuable episode because Bill was able to walk us through, and I'm sure you could have as well walk us through what happened in the nineties, what happened particularly in 1999 when it came to breweries and almost the deja vu that we're feeling now the deja vu that we're feeling from the last rise of craft and then the fallout or, you know, correction closure of craft. And we've gotten so many comments and so much good feedback from, from that, from that episode. I want to take a bit of a different approach today, which I think is equally as important as the episode with Bill, which, you know, walked us through all that, those timelines. And, and so the focus today is, something we all love, food. And I think the a comment that I've been making for the past at least five years, maybe longer, is that everyone has to drink, eat, nobody has to drink. So let me say that again, because I just botched that. Everyone has to eat, nobody has to drink, right? When you hear that line, Michelle, what, what, what comes to mind for you with that, with that statement? Um, oh, it's very true. I, I think it, um, I also think it's, it's an inclusivity issue as well. Um, all ages eat and all ages don't drink. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think when you start to approach, um, hospitality and what you're serving, it's really nice to, um, include whole families, um, individuals in the, in the group may not drink, they may drink different things. Uh, but I think that, um, and there's a little bit of a variety of, of inclusivity when it comes to food as well. So I think it's, um, it, it's a great point. I think it's something to not lose sight of. If we're talking about growing a business in an industry that's maybe on a downtrend, um, you know, you're going to look for growth in a, a wider audience rather than a, a more narrow one, I think typically. So certainly makes sense. Sure. 
And, and for all the listeners, I should have had you introduce yourself and, and tell us a little background, but give us your history with, with food service. Just give us a quick history of your, of what you've done in food service. Okay. Well, I'm Michelle Tressler. Um, like you said, I'm the co-founder of Hinterland Brewery and Restaurant. Um, when we started in 1995, um, this was my husband's dream. He wanted to own a brewery. He wanted to manufacture beer. Um, he was very, very focused on being a production brewery only. And from 95 to 98, that was pretty exclusively what we did. And we found ourselves, with, we were out kind of in the country. Um, our corporate name is Green Bay Brewing Company. Branding is Hinterland, um, which has really taken over sort of our DBA now. We, we were pretty much known as Hinterland. But um, we were actually in the outskirts. We were not in Green Bay. We were in a country area in an old cheese factory. And we were renting from family friends who owned a major cheese corporation who were kind enough to give us a sliver of their factory to start, a couple thousand square feet. And um, we renovated it. And we kind of thought we were just a production brewery. Well, it turned out that people found us. And um, <laughs> they looked at that label and they'd look at the address on the back and they drive around the countryside. And this is, this was in 95. So this is a long time ago. I don't think that they were looking at phones and GPSs at that point. Um, and they knock on our door and our doors would be locked. We'd, we'd be in production mode Bill and I, and maybe a couple family friends. Um, we had one employee in the first couple of years and we'd be deep in a bottling run and the, the door would be, because would be pounding on the door. We'd be like, what is up? So we'd go and everyone would say, you know, do you do tours? Do you have a tasting room? Or some people would stumble upon us because they knew it was a cheese factory and they'd say, where's the cheese? Kind of became our family joke for years. Like, where's the cheese? Like when you walk <laughs> in there, you see this huge um, refrigerated case of cheese curds. Um, oh. And the previous, uh, the previous occupants sold fresh cheese curds out of that facility. And so they'd say, where's the cheese? We'd say, well, we're a brewery now. And they'd say, well, can we come in and have a beer? And we're like, no, we don't do that. So <laughs> it found us in, um, so between 95 and 98, we kind of battled with it. Like, oh my gosh, do we do open hours? We started to entertain these groups that were called adventure clubs. We'd get phone calls and they'd say, hey, will you let us come out and do an adventure club at your brewery? Uh, Friday night, group of 30 people. We just want a tour. We want to have some beers. We'll bring in some food. Um, that was probably our first uh exposure to any sort of hospitality. And we're like, yeah, we can do that. Why not? It's good marketing. We'll let these people learn about us. And again, this is when craft beer was just coming to our area. You know, we came from San Francisco, Bill and I are from Green Bay originally, but we'd been living in San Francisco a couple of years. So we saw where it could be. We knew what was coming. And we knew that if we moved back to our hometown, we would be preceding the trend that we were watching really develop and grow in Northern California. So we thought, well, this is it. This is where the hobbyists come in, the beer clubs, the, the adventure clubs, all of these groups. So we found a need to bring in catering. And we'd, you know, we're food people. We've always liked food. My Bill's palate has always been, you know, the beer, the beer thing very much just was in line with how he feels about food. Um, and so the two of us cared a lot about food. We, neither one of us are chefs, but we certainly, um, uh, enjoyed the dining scene in Northern California. And we thought, well, we'll bring some catering in, we'll do some of that. And it got to be obvious that we needed to develop that. So we did do a little bit of that at that facility. But when we moved into downtown Green Bay in 98, 99, we knew we had to 
add a little bit of hospitality. So we did the kind of the tasting room vibe where we did um, cheese flights, we did pate. Um, mm. We had a very, very slim kitchen, literally just the bare minimum required uh, for code. Um, and we didn't have a full-time chef. We had really limited hours. So again, production mostly with tasting hours. And we would do olives, cheese, and, and pate flights. We had three options. Um, and we did all right with that, but it just kept coming and it just kept coming and we couldn't I, reverse that. Um, I feel that's we, like, that's so progressive for Green Bay. Were you guys uh, way ahead of your time? Yeah. And people thought we were a little out there and, you know, it's funny. Um, they'd say, you, you're the people that make that dark beer. You know, I always called it dark beer. It's so funny. Um, and they'd say, is it warm? Mm -hmm. You know, is it all these ideas that um, we were doing just weird stuff and green, you know, Wisconsin's a huge beer state. So clearly we, Big Miller Brewing Company. We've had, you know, Pabst. We've had a lot of of um, brands, but they're large scale domestic. So it was, it was. Uh, we were not the first in. We were among the first. I don't know, fifteen or twenty in in the state, but we were definitely early. And in Green Bay, Northeast Wisconsin is much less progressive than the southern part mm -hmm. of the state. So uh, we were doing cool stuff. We thought, you know, we we had a good response to it. And what we found is that the beer enthusiasts who weren't the food enthusiasts appreciated it. And the food enthusiasts who didn't yet know about beer came in and learned about beer. So it was actually a really cool way to do it. You know, you could go anywhere for a blooming onion and, you know, cheese curds and whatever, and there's nothing wrong with that. But at that time we wanted to focus on flavor and it really was, I'm not going to serve you an American lager and act like it's any more interesting than anything, no more than I'm gonna serve you some fried food. And, you know, we, we're doing something unique on all fronts. So I think it encompasses our food philosophy, which has definitely evolved. Um, and now we're so much yeah. bigger that the food philosophy is, isn't quite as um, progressive as it used to be, but we, we still feel the very same way about flavor. So I think that's really where it comes down to it. It's why food, breweries that think food is an afterthought have to really think about what they're selling because if you're selling flavor and you're selling lifestyle and it's um they go together so yeah. having a robust sophisticated food problem program is not wrong it's just not what most people do and i think it's because very few brewers are chefs mm -hmm. um and so maybe they think that they they can't do both well. Um, I also think it helps that Bill and I founded our company together. And I had varying degrees. I mean, over our 28 years in business, I have been full-time day-to-day around the clock. I have been uh, backed way off into part-time work, home with kids, doing books from home remotely. Like I've gone to, through many iterations of how involved I am in the business. Um, and there was probably about 10 years where I was involved on a much less day-to-day -day, um, than I am now and than I was in the beginning. Um, but the two of us together make up a team that's kind of operations and strategy, which is why my contrived title is chief strategy officer. It's serious, but it's also kind of tongue in cheek in the sense that it's silly. We're tiny. We don't have we're not tiny, but we're not, we're not big enough to have, you know, multiple C-suite titles. Um, right. But when Bill and I were um, kind of going through some changes as far as how we structured the corporate uh, hierarchy, he was clearly the CEO because he is 
definitely the day-to-day and um, I'm not so much operations. So we called me strategy because I think that's really um, what I've always done has been sort of that sort of high level view of the business to keep Bill on course because sometimes he's so in the weeds day to day that it's hard for him to see. So long winding answer, but food is integral, I think, to what we do. Um, Even though I think if you, my husband were here, he might tell you that we're brewery first. I think that that was his intention initially. Um, but I think it's really become, um, our food program has really, be, really, really contributed to our success in a way that we never dreamed. Yeah. I, another one of my lines is a brewery that brings in food and is successful at it becomes a restaurant that makes its own beer. And I think that's kind of parallel with what you were, you were talking about. What I still talk to brewery owners who, when we recommend bringing in a food program, they will look at me straight faced and say, I never intended to own a restaurant. I'm not doing it. What, what do you think about, what do you make of that, that that mindset? Yeah, it's definitely um, one of those industries that is kind of hated on and, and I, um, I get it, but I don't know how a tap room is, which in some ways is similar to a bar mm-hmm. is, you know, that much different. Um, so I think brewers get into brewing because they want to brew beer, not because they want to bartend um, and serve beer. And they have this idea that it's, it's a different process. Um, same with food. You know, I, I think that um, it's, it's not the same business in a lot of ways, but if you are attuned to flavor, and that's a whole other conversation. There are brewers that have, um, you know, that want to make a pure, um, you know, replication of a style that's scientifically precise, that's, um, you know, just all in the lab. And that's great. We do a lot of that as well. We have a very sophisticated, as you've seen, Chris, lab structure. Our brewmaster has a PhD um, in like microbiology. So we're pretty yeah. we're pretty heavy on the lab side. But one thing we've never lost sight of is that flavor side. And I, I just think that's so important. If your brewmaster doesn't have a phenomenal palate, um, I don't know if that comes from the founder or the owner. I don't know if that comes from, you know, inspiration elsewhere, sales, I don't know, it, it could come from a different places, but we really, our flavor team, and actually Bill's kind of joked, when we were naming teams a short a while back, we're doing some or, organizational leadership work um, and organizational leadership. And and we were naming teams and one of his teams is called the flavor team. And our executive chef and our brewmaster, he wanted to collaborate. Um, and that's really something that I think as a brewery, I would recommend if you don't have somebody with who considers themselves a foodie, um, think about it. You know, think about developing that side and 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 you know, be a typical American fare. Have fried foods and your typical stuff all day long if that's what you want. But if you want to really be different um, and um, and have a business model that may have some teeth to it long term. I would recommend doing a really, really interesting food program. Have um, recruit uh, a, a chef with fabulous training, with great experience, who wants to do something innovative. Um, 
we don't use extracts and stuff in our brewery and we don't use them in our kitchen. You know, we're, we're, um, you know, I would call us, um, you know, farm to table. I would call us locally sourced, a sustainable. Um, we don't, um, you know, when we were on a much smaller scale, we, we, we were adhered to a very, very strict, um, program now it's a little bit more we have more variety uh, of food than we used to and and we do serve um more typical um brew pub fare but we also yeah. serve the high-end sophisticated um really interesting cuisine so i think it's i think it all goes together it goes together much more so than people think as far as running a restaurant goes um it just depends on what you want to do if you want to have a full scale sit down um, experience, you're, it's, it's labor heavy. You're going to have a lot of employees, um, yeah. a big kitchen. You're going to have a lot of inventory. You're going to have a lot of different metrics, a little different, different KPIs, different management. Um, and I really think that culture in the restaurant business is imperative. Having said that, I think culture is really important on the brewery side too. But when you get to the point where you have a lot of employees, um, that culture piece, it means everything. You've got to live your values and you've got to run your business um, in a value-based way, or it really can get unwieldy. And I think that's what people are afraid of when they hear restaurant. They think of this Wild West, you know, drama, like a reality Bravo show or something, you know, right. it doesn't need to be that um, right. a professionally run business with layers of management. And, and I don't want to say layers, but um, you know, with, with a structured program, um, we have HR department, we have training, we have, um, you know, we very, very, uh, we adhere to policies that we think are very important to create positive and good culture. I think that's more important than anything. And if you've got that in your brewery already, I think you can, you can easily, um, you know, expand that to a restaurant operation. Yeah. In my so let, let me talk to you about approachability. And it seems to me that you guys have always pushed the bounds of your of your neighborhood as far as what what may be approachable, what may not be approachable. Early on, you did the pate with the cheese and the and then after that, I think you went to fine dining. Yeah. And now you're and, and go ahead. We remodeled in like 99 and uh, maybe 2001 and put a full-scale kitchen in, hired a chef. We actually took that chef out to San Francisco, took him to our five favorite restaurants. Um, she, he didn't last a super long time, but we ended up recruiting someone we knew um, who was living in Portland at the time, who was incredible. We knew he was doing really great things in the culinary world out there. And um, we basically showed him that we, we had the same vision for food and it was worth it for him to move to his hometown of Green Bay, Wisconsin. And he did, and he was with us for many, many, many years. Um, he's helped us open a restaurant, our, our second operation, which was in Milwaukee. Um, and he's since moved on and has his own restaurants and has been James Beard nominated multiple times and is a oh. great guy. But he really, um, we had to prove to him that we were willing to bring in fresh ocean seafood food and um, do some things and that were not going to be, you know, just the run of the mill brewery fair. He wasn't really interested in that. Um, and I think that was super important 
people told us we were crazy. There's just no way you can sell that price of an entree um, in Green Bay. And we did. And yeah. we continued to just grow and grow and grow. We, we, we had impeccable service. I think um, we always made sure the food was great, but the service was impeccable. And mm -hmm. that was what allowed us to stay in business um, and grow that food program. And the food program, I know Bill mentioned this when he spoke with you, carried us through the ups and downs of the brewing industry. That's what people kind of haven't realized is that these ups and downs, I think we're on, I'm on my third wave. I can, I can identify a third identifiable wave of major downturn. And they're, they've been a little bit different, but like you said in the beginning, this is similar mm -hmm. to um, previous ones in some ways too. But um, the food program and that level of profitability, our retail operation is what's carried us, what allowed us to continue to be a craft brewery beyond um, those downturns. And when the wholesale distributor distribution um, system was kind of down on craft and dropping brands and kind of shelving us and, and not doing much for us, we were able to pivot and focus on retail. Yeah. So it's what's given us the longevity. I, I would say if there's a lesson in this downturn, um, it would be to you know do what you need to do at the retail to make sure that you're interesting enough to stick around um, when people are chasing the next shiny object in the can that isn't necessarily craft beer. Yeah. I love it. That, that last little rant, but perfect. I mean, absolutely, <laughs> absolute gold for everything that I've, I've been talking about it. Right. I, I, my other line is retail is the future for craft. It's the foreseeable future. And you just laid out why, why that, that is the case. And, and, and let me tell you though, this is interesting though, because I, I am hundred percent with you on that, but we're all, I'll, I'll kind of shine some light maybe on the brewer's thinking. And I'm not a brewer per se, but I co-own a brewery. So um, I guess I'll call myself that for now. There's no upside in a restaurant. Um, there's no long-term value. Okay. Every bank, Every accountant's going to tell you your, you know, potential sell ability to sell that long term is practically nothing. I think a, fa a normal factor in the restaurant business is zero to one. You'll be lucky if you get a two factor, which means that you know you can have a thriving, successful restaurant, and you either need to um, hire people forever to run it if you don't want to be there day to day, or have you know kids that want to take it over. Because when you sell it, it's not going to be worth a ton. The reason I think brewers are so attached, not it's not just their ego and that they want to create beer and be this brand personality. There's some of that. But I think that there was a point in time in the brewing industry where breweries were selling for stupid factors. I mean, like insane valuations. Yeah. Absolutely made no sense. None of us could even believe it, but we watched it happen. And in over 28 years, there's been... Um, we've seen the whole cycle of that. So breweries were acquired for valuations far beyond what they were actually um, probably worth. And most of those breweries got killed. They're gone. Um, so it's an interesting thing to watch. I think the reason people want to open a brewery is that they love craft beer and they love brewing, but everybody always has that kernel of, I'm going to sell this thing. I'm going to make it big and someone's going to acquire me. And then, you know, that's where the big payout is. It doesn't happen in a restaurant. So it does take some, a different level of thinking when you say, 
just be a tap room, focus on this. Um, it's what goes in that bottle and goes out your back door that gives you long-term value. And I think it's hard to give that up Yeah. the future. If I get out of the wholesale game, if I take myself off all the shelves and I focus on this 90% gross profit margin, gold going over my bar, like, you know, and, and Chris knows that, um, you know, my husband and I, you know, running the business together, sometimes play good cop and bad cop. And we advocate for different parts of the business. And we, we beat each other up about, you know, about our values and, and we want, you know, but what about this? But, you know, so um, when I say that, you know, we're giving up margin on the retail side to kind of float this dream, um, you know, in the craft brewery distribution market, um, that's where it gets hard. And I have sympathy and I understand the thinking. So I'm with you, Chris, it's the year of retail, but if your intention isn't to stay in this forever and you think you're going to, you know, turn this, first of all, I'm going to tell you that it's very, very, very high odds against that, <laughs> first yeah. of all. But if you still, if that's still your goal, um, then, you know, you're probably not going to get that um, itch scratched or at least even have that aspirational goal when it comes to a tap room. Yeah. With me on that, yeah. uh, I can't agree more. I can't agree more. the The M and A transactions that happened from 2012 through 2015 were a were a disaster. They were a total pipe dream for what is now 9,000 breweries. And if we fast forward to today, most of those have been given back. Most of those have been shut down. Most of those are. They're reduced to one one style, one brand within a portfolio of brands, right? So I I can't agree with you more. And, and when I saw some of the stuff coming out, I was I was very concerned as to the hopes and the dreams that it was setting up for. But I love the way that you you kind of laid out the two the two industries and you know what's uh, marketable for a, a deal, an M and A deal, and what isn't, and kind of, you know, kind of what your, your options are there, because today we still get those questions, how, when, where, for what can I sell it? And I'm just kind of like, it doesn't work that way. And, you know, I mean, listen, we've been approached many times for, for deals. Um, nobody wants the restaurant. You know, they, they're like, whoa, this is a big operation. We happen to be a 300 seat restaurant. We are, you know, on the campus of a major NFL football team. I mean, there's a lot about our operation that is um, unwielding. It's also, you know, really, that's also these really big numbers. So it's appealing, but uh, major breweries who would be interested in, in, in acquisition aren't interested in running that kind of restaurant operation. Right. That is not really your exit plan. Um, it's, it's, it's you've got to have something which which it kind of go back to that food and that flavor element. Um, people are afraid of food. Um, I and I always find it so funny that some a brewer who, you know, is brewing a flavor, uh, um, something that you drink that needs to taste great. Um, you know, don't be afraid of the flavors. I mean, you can say I'm afraid of running a restaurant operation with servers and bartenders and cooks and chefs and dishwashers, for sure. But that's more of a culture issue. That's a that's an HR thing. It's a recruiting, reta reta retaining. It's um, 
Um, there's a lot to that that's a different sort of thing. Um, when it comes to flavors and foods, you shouldn't be afraid of that. Um, it, it's very yep. much in our wheelhouse. And so um, I'd love to see more breweries um, do really, really unique food. There are a few. Um, uh, a brewery in Chicago that I follow, I've actually never been there, but I follow on social media, um, Moody Tongue. Uh, they, oh, yeah, I, they, they do some insane stuff. Nominated, I think they were nominated for James Beard, but they I were. Mean, we toyed. I mean, we were right there back in early, mid 2000s. We were right there. We opened a restaurant in Milwaukee that was so progressive and experimental that um, people were actually like, this might be too experimental. Um, I mean, it was it was out there. So we loved it. Um, it was, you know, it, it, we, we kind of hit that 2008 downturn at that point shortly after we opened and um and retail took a hit in 2008 uh big time because yeah. a lot of the corporate business that we had sort of was was on the freeze for a, for a few years so that was a tough time for us but we were experimental we did some cool stuff i look at i look at some of those some of the breweries now that are doing extremely unique food and i think oh gosh you know to be back in those days it was really really fun but it brought people in the door and it brought new people to craft and, um, you know, I think Bill mentioned on your podcast too, that we've, we've always sold a lot of wine. We're unique. We are, we are, we are so old that we have old licensing. So we're able to do things that some of the newer guys aren't, hadn't been able to, they will be again now in Wisconsin, thanks to some new legislation. Um, but we, we sold a ton of wine and, um, I mean, we have, our, our people would say, you know, it's, it's high end food. Do you, do you, do you worry about that? No, we we were introducing people to to um, you know wine drinkers to beer, and it makes perfect sense. So it's it's just been a way to introduce um, uh, you know beer to people kind of beyond the bro scene, like you're talking about. Um, our current tap room, our current restaurant, is is maybe more approachable. It's it's less uh, high end than than our um, old restaurant um, that we had in downtown Green Bay. This one is just got a very, very cool vibe. And we have a kitchen upstairs that we call our high gravity test kitchen. Um, but that's where we do our pop-up dinners or experimental stuff. We aren't able to sustain that level of dining year round. And post COVID, we've done less of it because we have had a little bit more struggles um, staffing a full kitchen. Um, we do have a full kitchen, but we, we don't have the depth as far as people who are able to um, kind of do some of those specialized dinners. Um, but we'll do beer dinners. Like people, you know, we do wine dinners, we do beer dinners, we do um, themed dinners, we bring in vendors um, and focus on their uh, uh, food products, um, de develop an entire five course meal coursed with, with beer pairings um, for our vendors. We do a lot of really cool food stuff upstairs. Mm -hmm. And that's how we kind of scratch that itch. And we keep our local community who loved our high-end cuisine engaged. And then downstairs is kind of our big, our big um, tap room pub um, where we do um, wood-fired uh, pizzas. Um, you know, we do burgers. We do, um, you know, phenomenal entrees, ribeyes. We still do some, um, you know, some really fantastic um, fish entrees. So we kind of have a little of everything. Um, but it's, 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 it shouldn't, it's an, it's something that I don't think tap rooms 
should be afraid of, especially if you're a tech room that's run well mm -hmm. without a program and you feel like you have a well-oiled ship, you, you, you could bring it in on a smaller scale um, and take baby steps into it. Right. But do something interesting. Um, let's beyond what's typical. And I think you'll find yourself bringing in new customers. Totally, I agree. So for a brewery that is in that situation where they're, they know that they need to make a change in their, their tap room, they've got to either find another location or they've got to bring in food to their existing location. It sounds to me like you're recommending to push the envelope on, on flavor. I, I am. I mean, I would, I just personally, um, I don't think we need, you know, um, most places don't need a ton more bar food, you know, and, and I mean, it's, it's so it, whatever you do is what you do, it, you know, but um, I think you have to be willing to shine through your food yep. and have that be a reason to come. Um, the idea that, you know, we can get craft everywhere. Every single place you go, you can get a craft beer now. Um, you don't need to go to a craft brewer's tap room necessarily to get a craft beer. So I think if you want to draw people there, you, you might as well um, show that you really understand flavor. Yeah and do beer pairings and say, this is what tastes great with, uh, you know, our barrel aged sour, or, yeah. you know, I, I mean, there's, there's, you know, there, we, we've gotten into some really, really, you know, sophisticated, challenging beers as an industry. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's some of them pair really, really well with interesting food. Yeah. Not everything does, but um, approach it that way. And I think, yep. do, do you believe that every menu needs one viral item, one item that sells four to one and people come for, and they may try something different or. I don't know. I'm not a, so we, we came from the stand we, for, I think how long we were at the restaurant. I mean, at least 20 years, mm -hmm. uh, like 23 years. We've had like a full scale restaurant and we change our menu daily and we do less of it now in this huge 24,000 square foot facility with 300 seats now, but we still do. And we still add features daily. And um, there was a point at which 10 years ago, every single solitary day, almost every item was different. And wow. so um, that's tough from an inventory standpoint when you get really big to manage that. Um, but I am not necessarily the kind of person who wants to have one feature that's the same always and be your thing. Um, I, I, we get a lot of repeat business. We have a lot of regulars. Um, our atmosphere is really cool. We have a cozy vibe. People like coming in the winter because we have two enormous fireplaces that you can warm up and sit next to. Our regulars want something different. They don't always want the same thing and people are different. So I think you can go either way. If you've got a product that you're phenomenal at and you just knock it out of the park and that's going to be you and you're never going to change it. Great. But I would not be afraid of um, changing your menu, adding features. Um, you just, you have to have a culinary team that you really trust and that has a great palate and who know, and they know what to, um, you know, what tastes good and, we monitor our sales, you know, 
so closely that we know what items on our menu sell more than others, but it's a mix and some have some, you have more margin in too. Yes. So a lot of it is, um, you know, you need to have some of that, some of those grinders where you sell a million of them, but then you need to have some that are, you know, on the higher end in the margins where, um, you know, you've got a particular type of business dinner come in and they're all going to have that ribeye. And, you know, so you kind of have to have to know your customer, but no, I, I would say I'm not a one hit wonder type of fan when it comes to um, dining. But if you've got something that you're particularly good at, then go for it. It's yeah. just not and I, I feel like in a sense too, Michelle, you, you probably, you know, with how you've built your business model, you're also building your ideal customer, you know, like, like your return customers like the variety. You're, you're yeah. not necessarily looking for somebody who wants like the same thing every time they go somewhere. And then another business model might be doing that instead. Well, you're totally right. And you know, what's really unique about us is that we have really two or three different types of customers, but we are in a huge tourist location. Our tourism is insane. Um, and I think I'm trying to think of the number, but I think they'll said 25,000 people a month maybe come through our place. So we have, we have a huge tourist. Um, through your attract. brewery or through your city? Well, through our, our restaurant. <laughs> yeah. Our oh my God. Yeah. yeah. Um, so um, I should fact check that, but I think that's what he said on, on uh, your actual last podcast. But um, we have that customer, but that's seasonal. So when the time kind of for our heavy tourist season ends, we've got a city of 200,000 people in the metro area to draw from. It's not big. And we need our regulars to come out. So that's when we really hit that variety. Our regulars want to know that, um, you know, every Wednesday night we make our own pasta, um, that we're gonna have an incredible pasta feature and it's gonna be different every Wednesday. And, you know, we'll, we'll do ramen on Monday night sometimes and it's amazing. It's, it's just, it's, it's the real deal. So like we, that's when our regulars come back to us. So we're fortunate enough to have that tourism drive a lot of volume, but we need to pivot and be able to um, attract the people in town that need that need to come repeatedly. If they get our vibe, and they like our vibe and our and our atmosphere, they're going to want to come back. And so, um, having that variety is helpful for us in our model. So interesting. I can't help but sit here and listening listening to this episode. I'm like, some brewery owners are going to hate hearing all of this. Well, and <laughs> they don't. They don't want to do it. They don't. They don't want the hassle. It's not why they got in the industry. It's you so know. funny because, um, you know, I said earlier that Bill and I battle sometimes about parts of the business and, you know, I, um, I, he has, you know, he's, he is a brewer, went to brewing school, loves brewing and his heart will be there forever, but he's also a major foodie, but I advocate sort of for the reality, the numbers, and we kind of go back and forth on it and his heart gets in the way sometimes when it comes to that. But um, but when you really analyze our numbers, the numbers speak to the reality. Our food and restaurant program has kept us alive for 28 years. Um, not solely, but it's allowed us to develop what we think is a cool brand, what we think of beer, what we think encapsulates our personality, it encapsulates our values, it encapsulates our palate. 
And so it's given us that freedom to do really cool things on the brewery side. So um, I shouldn't be afraid of it. I think if anything, um, think, you know, you're giving up a huge piece of hospitality by not, by not offering the total experience. And if you're bringing in food trucks or other operators, you know, some people are happy to have that rent and that steady, steady amount. Um, But I really see it as giving up a lot of opportunity. So I, I would, I would, I would say, don't be afraid. Um, but know that you're going to be dealing with, you know, going from employing five to 10 people to tens and, you know, I think we have 130. So if that gives you any idea, that's a whole different beast. Well, it's interesting. You talked about, you said something that hit on this on an angle I've never heard anyone say, which is that having the food side of things allows you actually more freedom to, you know, do other stuff in the brewery side. Whereas I think what I hear people saying more often is that food is more restrictive because it it's another thing to have to to deal with. But that's a really cool perspective you have. That sounds a little bit like founder syndrome to me. I mean, that really is the type <laughs> of mentality of a founder who has a certain amount of mental space and who only wants to be great at one thing. And there's an entire, I mean, there's business books galore that are gonna tell you to focus on only what you're good at. But I'm gonna tell you that if you are a good employer and that can hire competent people, trust them. Um, and it's gonna take some some people and some competency and some leadership, um, which is you know where I really, spend a lot of my time focusing on organizational leadership, on culture, on retention and retain, you know, uh, recruiting and reten- retaining employees, um, everything we can do to make sure that, you know, we are a great employer and that we're attracting people, um, you know, for example, something I'm really, really proud of, um, we have 50% female brewers in our brewery. Um, I don't think many breweries can say that. And um, just our recent, most recent hire put us at 50 and we're like, Woo, we're all celebrating it. I was in yesterday and one of our brewers is like, you know, it's so cool that we're 50% female brewers. I, I don't think that many people can claim that. I, um, I've really focused on a lot of um, a culture issues in, um, in both sides of the business and um, developing programming in, you know, the kitchen. Um, to deal with some unconscious bias and some sexual harassment stuff and some problematic issues that were in our industry for a long time. I think that's key. You, you got to really want to be a business person mm-hmm. to, to sort of take on all of that. And, and if you want to be a brewer, that's okay, but hire a great business manager because all of those things, your brewery will improve. Um, you know, it, it'll be, it's daunting, but every part of your business will improve. Um, it just came to mind a book I would recommend um, if you're thinking about getting into the brewing business. Um, I think it's called The Next Supper. And I believe the author is a guy named Corey Mintz, maybe. Um, yeah, I think that's his name. Um, but anyway, it was he he wrote the book during finished the book during COVID. And he really talks about the next thing happening in the restaurant business. He talks a lot about restaurant culture and that it's been toxic and that. Um, you know, not um, diverse and um, kind of autocratic. 
And that really has to change moving forward with the new, you know, the new generation of employees um, who are amazing, by the way, in my opinion, they're just different. You've got to, you got to approach them differently. But um, those are all things that excite me. It, it, it excites me to run our business in a way where I can really focus on people. Um, so I think that's probably why it doesn't scare me to have the restaurant side. Um, it's just, it's just really dealing with more people, um, mm -hmm. not different. Um, in the sense that, you know, um, you know, the inherent work isn't any different. You, you've got to care for your people and, and, and really run it professionally. And if you're willing to do that, you can totally handle um, the additional work and sales, yep. in my opinion. Michelle, to be honest, I did not know how this episode was going to go. And you are so flipping inspirational when it comes to the food <laughs> side. This well, is exactly what everyone needs to hear. And we're going to title this. Yeah. Welcome to the flavor queen with oh Michelle Tressler. I don't oh know. Well, now, okay. Now I'm we'll going to talk I'm about that. Be embarrassed about that because I don't think if I walked into our kitchen and asked the team of chefs that work for me, if Michelle is the flavor queen, they're going to say, what, <laughs> you know, is she taking credit for that? I am absolutely not taking credit for it. No, I'm <laughs> my thing. I am. I can, I draw connections like that's in yeah. our business. I, I think I can see the bigger picture sometimes than the people on the front line. I mostly home office. I come in um, for meetings here and there. I see bird's eye view. I look at numbers. I go in and I can, I can connect, I think philosophically and strategically what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong. I'm by absolutely not the flavor queen. Um, but I know that that's what we do well. And yeah. We found people who get it, who get us. And um, there was a period, I know we're wrapping up, but there was a period where everyone in the brewing scene was like, you know, these bros and a lot of them had, you know, their flannels and their facial hair. And, you know, it's very stereotypical and all good. And we'd meet with marketing companies and they'd be like, we need to create a brand identity. We need to change your brand identity. We need to research your brand identity, all these things. And it'd be like, we know who we are, you know, we absolutely know who we are. We are not typical. We're not exactly like everyone else. Um, but my husband is probably more in the long lines of a more typical, you know, he's a snowboarder. He's a ex skateboarder. He played drums, you know, he's super into food. I mean, he's, he's, you know, kind of got some of that, but where I come in is I, I really, um, I think that I can help access what's great about people, our coworkers, um, you know, what they bring to the table and I can help people really access um, what they're wonderful at. And I think that's the key to any business is tapping into your people. No founder can do it all. And that's the quickest way to just get so off track in my opinion. And I've teased my husband about founder syndrome a few times because I think, um, you know, if I, if, if, if he doesn't, isn't careful, he can get there. Um, so, you know, it's just a matter of continuing to work on your business and not always in your business. And, and, um, and that's sort of what I do. So, yeah, I am not the, the inspiration for flavor. I just can call bullshit when I know it doesn't work for us. When something doesn't match who we are, I can see that. Got it. So something tells me that this episode is going to generate a lot of interest. And if 
without without divulging too much personal information, like personal email, if somebody had questions on how to get started or wanted to run some stuff by you, would you be open to taking that call or email? Totally. Okay. I do. I actually do a lot of community stuff. I, um, I've, um, I've run a entrepreneurship workshop for, um, young people in communities here. And, and I, I, I have a few mentors or mentees I, I meet with regularly. I kind of love that part of it again, which is the beauty of having two people in a business running it because I get to kind of do some of that community stuff, which I think is fun. And a lot of, a lot of, owners and founders just don't have time for. So I absolutely love it. If you want to email info at hinterlandbeer.com, it always gets to me. I see them all. Um, so that's oh. a perfect way to reach out to us. And you can pretty much reach anyone in our organization that way. Yeah. Just say something in the title, like podcast, SBS podcast question or something. And that'll, that'll get to, I'll forward this to Michelle. I, Michelle. I you know, ask yeah. for it ask for some um, time and advice maybe on things. And I'm a, I'm a really, I'm a really honest person. I don't necessarily have the advice for everyone. I'm, I am very honest and um, I'll tell you flat out, like, you know, things are not going to work and maybe they aren't working for us right now in some ways. So if that's the case, I'm probably going to tell you that <laughs> I'm not. Love um, honesty around here. Yeah. yeah. I usually don't yep. candy it too much. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This this was a killer episode and um, hope you have a great, great week and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Nice meeting you, Katie. You as well, Michelle. Thanks for your time. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The True Craft Podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. And if you are just dying to know what Chris and I look like, you can head over to YouTube for a video recording of the show. Links to cool information about our guests and other fun facts can be found in the show notes. This podcast is sponsored by Small Batch Standard, the premier financial agency built to serve the craft brewing industry. We help craft breweries grow profits through outsourced accounting, tax compliance, and growth consulting. Visit sbstandard.com today to learn more and request a discovery call.